Hola, so good morning. I apologize for my congestion I've had all along. <clears throat> this morning I took <clears throat> a cough drop and it definitely worked. It made me cough and cough and cough until I was ready to, <laughs> until I was ready to drop. <laughs> uh, so I'm trying, <clears throat> I'm trying another technique of just taking a lot of water because I know it's a bit disturbing for your meditation and also people listening to the, um, to the podcast. So, but it is, it, <clears throat> it's just congestion. It's just, uh, just that. But I keep on having to clear the, clear the throat. So I'll try to fix it so I don't keep on bombing your, medita- <clears throat> bombing your meditation with my throat clearing. That's, um, thank you. I think it wasn't that kind, but it was another kind of cough drop that actually seems to make me cough. <laughs> thank you very much, though. I think I probably just need to take more water because <clears throat> I feel very healthy. It's just congestion. So, <clears throat> so this morning, as you can easily expect, we will return to awareness of awareness. And this is a very penetrating aspect of it. The, the, among the four phases, what we are now going into the second phase, among the four phases, this is the one that most deeply encroaches in Vipassana territory. As we, first of all, just utterly rest, rest the awareness in its own nature, completely let rest and let go, and then we'll turn the awareness in upon that which is, <clears throat> that, which, that which is aware, as we set up the oscillation of inversion and release, inversion and release, we'll watch this consciousness that is being withdrawn and then released We'll watch the consciousness itself, that which is perceiving, that which is perceiving, and then we'll penetrate even further as if kind of a deeper biopsy, except for this would be maybe a cognoscopy or something, going right into the very nature of that which is uh, inverting and releasing the awareness. So it's a penetration and then a yet a deeper penetration. Now, the implications here are very deep. And that is, if we relate this back to the very brief, extremely brief sutta or discourse by the Buddha to the wandering ascetic Bahia, his instructions, as I think you probably recall by now, were in the seen let there be just the seen, in the heard just the heard, in the sensed, that is that which is tactilely or somatically perceived, let there be just that, and then finally in the cognize, in that which we mentally perceive, of thoughts and so forth, let there be just the mentally perceived. And then he said, if you do that, then you will see there is no thing in here, there is no you in here, there is no entity in here. And then realizing that, you will see there is no entity there, out there. And in so doing, then you'll be freed. And Bahia listened to the discourse, and he was freed. That was it. No preliminary practices, no prostrations, no shamatha. He had already achieved shamatha. He was already a great ascetic, a great yogi. He just listened to the Buddha's talk. So I probably should recite it at least once, recite that whole sutta just to see if any of you, you know, <laughs> go. <laughs> and then we'll definitely, you'll not just sit, sit beside me. I will swap my chair with you. I'll, I'll sit on your cushion and listen with great reverence. Um, but that wonderfully simple and utterly to the point discourse by the Buddha pertains directly to kind of the core Buddhist, Buddhist epistemology of how do we get hung up in samsara in the first place. And this comes up in Dujung Lingba's text, the Vajra Essence. And that is, while resting in the substrate, while resting in the substrate, as in 
Oh, when you're first conceived, as in when you're deep asleep, as when you're dead, and so forth. Resting in the substrate, there's a type of movement, kind of the symmetry, that evenness, that homogeneity of the substrate is broken. And out of that, I like the notion of broken symmetry because I think it's really quite close. It's drawn from physics as a metaphor. But out of that comes this sense, this congealed sense, something crystallizes. And interestingly enough, where it crystallizes is on the subjective side. Straight Dharmakirti also. So there's all, all in accord. And that is, first of all, this congealing, this crystallization, and then the reification, hmm, I'm in here. And then as soon as I'm in here, like I'm over here, I'm on this side, hmm, there's some space over there. And so there's an awareness of self here and then a space that is not self. Oh, I'm perceiving space. And then as this evolution continues, then that space starts to take form. We see forms arising in the space, forms emerging from the space, consisting of the space. And lo and behold, we have a lot of things out there, a lot of people out there. And now we have this bifurcation which gets immediately reified. Self in here, mind in here, matter out there. But all of this coming out of just the flow of experience, right? And so how this is reinforced is something that is strongly emphasized in the Madhyamaka philosophy, and that is for us unenlightened beings, everything that appears to us appears as if it's existing from its own side. So as I gaze at our housing, housing complex, just you know, in, front of, in, my, in my field of vision, it looks to me like it's entirely there from its own side. The appearances seem to be utterly objective, independent of anyone's perception. I mean, absolutely over there. And when I think of myself, I think I have a sense of myself being utterly in here, absolutely in here, as if what is appearing out there exists independently, not only of perception, but independently of any conceptual designation. Whatever, what appears in here as me, the sense is it appears as if I exist in here independently of my awareness of myself, the perception of myself, but also independently of any conceptual designation of myself. In other words, I really exist in here by my own nature, independent of conceptual designation, and what is out there, matter, the physical world, seems also it appears to exist and we grasp onto it as existing by its own nature, independent of conceptual designation. So the, the task that Bahia was giving him, that the Buddha was giving Bahia, was a very simple one, but a very formidable one. And that is release all the conceptual grasping, all the conceptual superimposition in the, for each of these, the, the seen, heard, physically cognized, and mentally cognized, in each of these, let there be just what is manifesting. And you reduce back from the, how do you say, this whole process of naming and reifying, and you come back simply into a non-dual flow of experience. So, this practice is very simple, but it's quite deep. So let's jump in.
settle the body in its natural state, the speech in its natural state by way of settling the respiration in its natural rhythm, and settle the mind by way of mindfulness of breathing. And let your eyes be gently open and very softly cast your gaze downwards without any strain at all. And without taking anything as an object, without directing your attention outwards or inwards, Just rest, rest your awareness in its own nature. Simply be present.
And then begin the oscillation of inversion and release. As you invert your awareness, focusing, concentrating, direct your awareness in upon that which is observing. Arouse and focus your awareness in upon the observer, which you may call yourself. Release into space, invert and release. And simply see what you see as you observe closely. And then relax, sustaining gently the thread of awareness of awareness throughout the oscillation.
And then invert your awareness even more deeply. Examining very closely 
whether there is a sense of there being someone in here, namely you, who is the agent, who is inverting and releasing the attention. And then as you invert and focus your attention inwards, See if you can hone in right on that very agent that is inverting and releasing the attention. If you have a sense of there being a mind in here, on the the subjective side, that is controlling the attention, examine very closely what is the nature of this mind that is really in here. Observe it closely with each inversion and then release.
release the oscillations of your attention like a pendulum that gradually comes to rest in the center. Let your awareness come to rest in the center, neither out nor in, resting in its own place. And simply rest in that knowing of knowing. And let's bring the session to a close. So the theme of middle way, middle way runs through Buddhism in so many different ways. One of the very very important one is philosophically. And it's a fine, it's a very narrow middle way. And that is one may falsely draw the conclusion as a result of such practice, as one inverts and seeks, seeks out the observer, seeks out that which is releasing and inverting the attention upon not finding, one might come to the conclusion, conclusion, oh, I get it, I don't exist. The very realization, ah, I get it, I don't exist, 
is kind of like the statement, ideas don't exist. If you don't exist, how do you just come to the conclusion that you don't exist? How can a non-entity come to any realization at all? So that's not the conclusion. It's not the conclusion that we simply don't exist at all, and it's not the conclusion that matter doesn't exist at all. But rather that these do arise out of this flow of experience which in integral to which is this process of naming, to which then comes the, the delusional process of reifying. Integral to this is the process of naming, and out of this especially, most prominently, when we have a, a group of language users. So we share a common language. And we also share a common conceptual framework, closely related to our language, that conventionally speaking, relative to our cognitive frames of reference, relative to our language use, relative to our conceptual frameworks, we do exist. There's a person here, his name is Alan, he's a person, that's me. And that's a true statement, conventionally, relative to the fact that we are all speaking the same language, and that I have conceptually imputed myself, as you, or you have as well. So conceptually and conventionally, yes, I'm here. And likewise, there is a world of physical phenomena out there when we blink, when we're not looking. Grass grows when nobody's looking. The craters on the moon did not suddenly occur when Galileo first looked at them through the telescope. His telescope was not a crater maker, you know. They were created by meteorites, apparently, big asteroids or what have you, long before Galileo looked at them, right? So this was impressed upon me years ago when I first started taking an interest in physics as a Buddhist monk in Switzerland. There was this Madhyamaka master, again, Urgensetin, Geshe Urgensetin, really a master. And he impressed upon me when he somehow got wind of the fact that I was starting to get interested in physics. And he said, Alan, make no mistake, the Madhyamaka philosophy is not refuting the existence of atoms. So the very, the very core substance out of which the whole material world is made, we're not refuting the existence of atoms. We're simply refuting their inherent nature. That is that the atoms, anything out there, atoms, fields, particles, waves, galaxies, space, time, that anything out there exists independently of conceptual designation or that there's anything in here, namely I or mine, that exists independently of conceptual designation. But they do exist, they do exist, and they causally interact on this conventional or relative level. So this is a powerful departure from some very deep and, and still abiding thinking in the modern West, and we can trace it back at least as far as Descartes. He gets the blame for a lot of this, I mean, according to a lot of Western philosophers. And that is, as in his quest to find something, that, a point, a stance that would be absolutely indubitable, beyond doubt, beyond any question, he came up with his famous aphorism, I think, therefore, I am. It's interpreted in different ways, but one straightforward way of interpreting it is, I really am here, subjectively. There really is an agent. It's me with my immortal soul, you know, René. And I absolutely am here, and how do I know that? Because I think, and that's indubitable, unquestionable, absolutely true. And in so labeling himself as the agent of thoughts, apparently not noticing that thoughts really do all occur all by themselves without there being an agent, in labeling himself as I am the agent who thinks and then reifying that, then he reified the absolutely objective res extensa, the world of physical, of material phenomena out there that extend through space, independent of our perceptions, that God can see directly from a God's eye perspective, absolutely out there by their own nature. 
And so he labeled the objective physical world as the physical, the material, labeled the subjective I am in here as radic two radically different types of substances. One being material, extending throughout space, the other one being utterly immaterial, the self, the soul, the I, consciousness, mind. And then from the very moment that he said that, then problems arose, well, how can they possibly interact? And that, then as we've reviewed very briefly, and I'm gonna wrap this up real quickly, over the roughly 400 years, a bit less, since he was writing these things, then this tremendous advance of knowledge, admirable, laudable, magnificent growth of knowledge of that which is out there, the physical, objective, and quantifiable, no comparable growth of knowledge over those 400 years or so of the subjective until the, until the objective scientists then come in and say, okay, we don't have any competition here. The theologians have not come, not, not come up with anything at all. The, the, in fact, one biologist said theology is the one discipline that has nothing as its topic. <laughs> so, whew, gone. And now we're getting, I mean, from the limited materialists, from the behaviors we've seen this as well, that the study of the subjective is one more discipline that has nothing as its topic. <coughs> and so basically, the enfant terrible, who grew out of Christian theology, namely modern science, comes and kills its parent, kills both its parents, that is the mind that conceived of science and the God that allowed us to conceive of science, according to Descartes and others, takes over the whole show and says, all that exists is the res extensa, the physical, that's all there is to it. You are just physical, your mind is just physical, and then there we have a world of flat surfaces with no subjective that has any reality of its own apart from a mere effulgence of the brain. So it's a peculiar history, a peculiar history. But this is this practice, a very simple practice, is seeking not to simply combat materialism any more than it's seeking to combat, let's say, metaphysical idealism, that the only thing that is real is the mind, but go right to the source of the problem, deeper than Descartes went, penetrating right through to the reification of I am, the reification of mind as separate from matter, penetrating through to that, and then the whole conundrum of how can the immaterial mind interact with this absolutely objective physical world, how can they possibly interact? The problem that was created by humans is now deconstructed by the contemplatives. Because it's a problem you don't have to address anymore. Because it was a contrived artificial problem for which there is no solution. The solution lies in going down to the root, back to experience, from which the concepts of mind and matter emerge, get reified, and then, as the Madhyamaka tells us all along, as soon as you reify anything, if you to reify two atoms, then you, you are in a real conundrum. How can two absolutely inherently existent atoms ever causally interact? And the answer is they can't. How can anything that is reified, subject and object, you and me, space, time, matter, energy, if, any, if anything is reified, according to the Madhyamak insight, and I think it's a radiant insight, as soon as you reify anything, you make it inexplicable how that anything can possibly causally interact with anything else. Everything becomes absolutely isolated and therefore is taken out of any kind of causal nexus. So it's quite a brilliant stroke. Okay? But that's talk. Let's continue with the practice, and I'll see you this afternoon. And by the way, through a generous uh, gift from Erica, we have a, 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 a watch, a clock up here, so when you have other people are leading meditations, I'll leave this clock so everybody can use it, okay?
Enjoy your day.